Well, good evening. It's good to be here with you. Um, it's good to be here with you. You know, I was thinking, I was reflecting this evening about uh, the many times I visited here, the Weimar campus, and uh, the many youth conferences I've been able to attend, though this is my first time to Western Youth Conference. And um, I was thinking of the many sermons that I've preached, and I, I sort of realized, I had this sort of sensation, this is... Uh, this is sort of marks a, an ending in my life, you know. Um, I realize this is the last time that I'm going to be visiting Weimar and my last youth conference. And the last time I'll be speaking to young people. And in fact, this weekend will be my last sermons as a single man. Because next Sunday I'll be getting married, and so I'm, I feel grateful to be able to spend. I know first that seems like quite an accomplishment, <laughs> but um, I'm grateful to be able to spend this time with you. And some people have said to me, you know, you're you're going the weekend before your wedding, but the the fact is that I had agreed to be here before I knew I'd be getting married next week, so. I'm trying to keep my commitments as I make new ones. So it's good to be here. And I hope to be here many more times um, with the love of my life. And uh, she would like to be here today, but it didn't seem wise. But her parents are here today. So I'm thankful to have uh, my future in-laws visiting today, Mr. and Mrs. Yoon. So. Today we're going to be talking about revival and reformation. We're going to be talking about what it means to begin a new life with Jesus. And so, as we do so, I think it would be wise for us to spend a moment to ask God's blessings, God's presence here among us. Let's just bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, today we are grateful that you've given to us so many blessings. Thank you for bringing us here to this beautiful place, this sanctuary in nature as well as in time when we can come apart and we can, we can focus on your word and on what you would have us to learn and to know and to grow in. Today I just want to pray that you'll be with the, these few minutes that we have together, that you'll be with my lips that you will hide me behind the cross of Christ, that, that Jesus might be able to be seen in a, in a personal way, that his voice might be heard speaking to each heart. Lord, that we might be drawn closer to, to him, closer to being prepared for his coming, and to be able to be revived to experience that, that new life that can change the world. We thank you for promising to be here. We claim this promise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2. And we're going to be looking here at the story of the children of Israel. Judges chapter 2 this is 
taking place after the Israelites have entered Canaan, but before the death of Joshua. Now, if you think about the context of this passage, you think about the context of what is going on here. You remember that the, the, the Israelites have seen a lot of things in their lifetime. Although most of those who, have, um, who actually left Egypt have already died during the 40 years of wandering, right? There, there are still those who have seen the miracles as they've been through those 40 years in the wilderness. They've seen the manna, right? They've perhaps, um, they perhaps seen some of the other miracles that have gone on day after day. They've seen the crossing of the Jordan River. They've seen the, the miracles of the falling of Jericho and so forth and so on. They've seen God doing mighty works, right? So these people know something about God. They know something about God. They know that they are believers in the true God. They've seen their God compared to the God of the Canaanites and the, the Philistines. And they have decided, they've had evidence to decide that their God is the true God. And if you find here in, in, in Judges chapter 2, you, you, you read here these first few verses that even though they knew about the God of heaven, they knew about the God that they worshipped, they still had a problem. They still had a problem. So there was a special messenger sent to them. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Judges chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, An angel or messenger of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swore unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars. That was the agreement that God had made with Israelites. In fact, all the way back, if you look in Genesis chapter 17, you see the agreement that he had made with Abraham. This was the agreement. It was a covenant that had been made with Abraham and with his descendants. But yet the last part of this verse says, But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? You've not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? If we could try to understand what Israel must have been thinking, I suppose as they entered the land, I'm just giving them the benefit of the doubt here, but I suppose that as good believers in the true God, they had every intention of doing what God had told them to do, wouldn't you guess? Wouldn't you think they had an intention of doing the right thing? You see, they, they intended to be obedient. They had intended to drive out the Philistines and the Amorites and all the rest, who, those who said should not stay in Canaan. They intended to do that, but they hadn't quite gotten around to it. It reminds me a little bit of a child. You know, a child sometimes is told by his or her parent to do something. Do you mind if I just lower this? It feels like it's between me and you. If a child is told by their parent to do something, and they say, okay, I'll do it, but they keep playing or keep doing what they had been doing before, have they really been obedient? Oh, but they're going to, right? They intend to. They will, at, in their own good time, when they get around to it, when it's convenient, when they feel like it. Is that obedience? That's not obedience. That's not obedience. But I think that's what the Israelites had done. I think that's the situation they found themselves in. I'm guessing because they were good people like you and I are good people. They were believers in the true God. They knew about the God of heaven. I'm guessing that they intended to obey God. 
They just hadn't quite gotten around to it yet. It wasn't something that was, that was important enough to be high on the agenda today. I mean, after all, they had their daily life to take care of, you know. They had their sustenance to maintain. They had to do all their daily duties. We tend to think of people in 2011 as being very, very busy. And we are busy today. Maybe we're busier than in previous eras. But I think probably people in every age have always been busy. And when you have to grow the food you're going to eat that day, it's a different type of busyness than we even ourselves have today. And they were busy, and they hadn't quite gotten around to doing what God had told them to do. And in fact, it hadn't quite taken a high priority in their life. It hadn't come to the point where it was first place, because if it had been first place in their life, they would have already accomplished it. It was there in the back of their mind. They knew they were God's people. They knew they had this task to do. They knew they were supposed to be obedient. And they thought because they professed obedience, because they intended obedience, because they hoped for obedience, that they were counted obedient. But the angel of the Lord says to them, You have not obeyed my voice. Therefore, he says, I also said unto them, verse 3, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. In verse 4 we find, verse 4 and 5, we find that a revival took place among Israel as the angel of the Lord brought close to their hearts their true condition before him. A revival took place in Israel. I love studying about revivals. The Bible says in verse 4 that... The, it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spoke these words unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and did what? They wept. Why did they weep? They were weeping because they saw themselves as they really were. They were weeping because they understood that delayed obedience is not obedience. They were weeping because they realized that disobedience brings eternal consequences. And they lifted up their voice, the Bible says, and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim. And they sacrificed there unto the Lord. Bokim in the Hebrew simply means weeping. They remembered this place as a place where they had an awareness. They came to, a, they came to an awakening. They came to a realization of what their true condition really was. And it brought them an experience of weeping, of mourning, of crying before the Lord. And the Bible says they, they created, they offered sacrifices there. And as they split and went their separate ways, the Bible says in verse 7, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. This revival brought a reformation that was sustained not just until Joshua died, which wasn't too long later, but even until the elders who had served alongside Joshua died. It was a generation who came to Bochim and had a reformation, a revival and reformation, who, who came to an awareness that obedience means now. It means this has to be our priority. We have to make our religion not just something we intend to do sometime in the future, but something that consumes us today, something that is first on our priority list. It reminds me, I believe it's in the Desire of Ages, a statement where we're told that religion must be made the great business of our lives. They realized that. And a revival and a reformation took place which would be sustained for a generation. It's amazing 
What happens when a revival can take place? There are two understandings that are essential to a revival. I think they're really just the same understandings that are essential to conversion. Because really that's what revival is, isn't it? It's a deeper conversion. It's a renewal of our conversion experience. It's a coming back to our first love. It's an understanding of two things. Two things that are essential to salvation. First is an understanding of God's character. An understanding of who God is. Now the, the children of Israel had some understanding, didn't they? They had some understanding of who God was. God gives us enough understanding, enough information, enough knowledge that we might see who He is. Now we're living in a world that has obscured the character of God. We're living in a world where even Christianity has, has, has been the purveyor of ideas that slanders the character of God. And we have, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, the opportunity to not only share the truth, which un unveils the true character of God, but also to live lives which reflect the true character of God, right? That's what we're called to do. So as Christians, we, we understand we need to have an understanding of the character of God. We need to understand that God is a God who's not out to just catch people doing wrong. He's not out to just try to find something He can condemn you for. There are some people, perhaps in our lives, in our past, that we've known who are, had that characteristic, those characteristics. And maybe that's why we impose those ideas upon God. But that's not God at all. That God is looking for every reason to excuse and to forgive and to and not to condemn. I think of Jesus there and in the hour of his greatest trial, when he is going through his greatest pain, and yet he is offering excuses, as it were, for Peter and the disciples. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus understands our humanity. First, we have to understand the character of the God we serve. And I, I hope that as Seventh-day Adventist young people, we are daily growing in an understanding of the character of God. This happens as we spend time in God's Word. The second understanding that is necessary for revival and reformation, that is necessary for salvation, in some ways, it's just as important as an understanding of God. And that's an understanding of ourselves. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think that sometimes it's easier for us to intellectually come to an understanding of the character of God than it is for us to come to a real comprehension of our own characters. That sometimes is the more difficult of the two. The human heart, the Bible says, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And too often we're filled with pride. I think of the, the tale of the U.S. warship that was sailing in the North Atlantic. You might have heard this tale before. This vessel was sailing, and um, they received a radio transmission from the Canadian authorities, which said, address the American ship, and said, you must deviate your course 
15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The American replied, no, you deviate your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadians replied back, no, you deviate your course 15 degrees south to avoid a collision. And the commander of the U.S. warship said, this is the USS Abraham Lincoln, the second largest aircraft carrier in the North Atlantic Fleet. We have a convoy with three, three destroyers and so many other ships. I repeat, you must deviate your course or we will have to take precautionary action to ensure the safety of the ship. The Canadians replied, this is a lighthouse, your call. Ellen White says, people tend to exalt themselves who if they simply had better knowledge would wish to shrink into insignificance. Are you following? Sometimes we think we have so much. We think we're so important. We think we're God's people. We have the truth. We do this right, we do that right, we do something else right, and we're so satisfied with what we do have and what we do know and what we do right that we, we become proud. And I think if we really saw ourselves in the light of eternity, if we saw ourselves as God sees us, we would shrink. We would want to shrink into insignificance. We would want to be invisible. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. Turn with me there. Isaiah 57 in verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah here paints a picture of this eminent God, of this God is, who is high and lifted up, a God who is far removed, far more powerful, far more holy, far more pure, who inhabits eternity. He paints this mental picture of this kind of a God, and then he says, I dwell with what kind of a person? A person who is also high? Or a person who is humble? A person who is of a contrite and humble spirit, he says. And so we find that the knowledge of ourselves is perhaps the more elusive of the two knowledges that are necessary, the two understandings that are necessary for a revival and a reformation, for salvation.
I like the passages, one in Desire of Ages, page 300, another in page 329. The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man. How much? Nothing, nothing toward the recovery of man. Until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the workings of the Holy Spirit upon his heart. Then he can receive the gift that heaven is waiting to bestow. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. Oh, if we only had a better sense of our need. A better sense of our true condition. Sometimes I think we, like Israel of old, need an angel. An angel like that, an angel who came to them at Bochim to tell them their true condition. But wait a minute. We do have an angel, don't we? We do have a messenger. Revelation chapter 3 tells us of a special message brought just to us today. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, tells us of the Laodicean message, right? You say in your heart, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is the message of the angel of Bochim to the church today. This is a message to us. A message that says, okay, you have grown spiritually. Okay, you have made progress. Okay, you are doing some of the right things. But you need to understand where you could be if you were only in the hand of God as I would want you to be. And so we find that God wants us to see ourselves as we really are. And you know this, there's a symbiotic relationship between seeing ourselves as we truly are and coming to a better understanding of God. As we come to a better understanding of God's character, we will, see, we will tend to see ourselves and how we fall short more clearly. As we come to a better understanding of our own shortcomings and failings, we will also tend to see the character of God in a greater way. After all, if God can be so merciful to me, a sinner, it tells me something about his love. In Review and Herald, September 25, 1900, many see much to admire in the life of Christ, but true love for him can never dwell in the heart of the self-righteous. Not to see our own deformity is not to see the beauty of Christ's character. When we are fully awake to our own sinfulness, we shall appreciate Christ. When we are fully awake to our own sinfulness, we shall appreciate Christ. The more humble are our views of ourselves, the more clearly we shall see the spotless character of Jesus. You know, it's not very popular to preach about sin. But sometimes... Sometimes we need messages that will awaken in our hearts a sense of need. Can I tell you my story? I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist home. And I think perhaps, like the generation at Bochim, those of us who have been raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home, we have a greater tendency to be comfortable with what we know and I mean, we're Adventists, right? We're God's people. We believe we have the truth, et cetera, et cetera. 
I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist home, and I, I praise the Lord for those blessings. You know, sometimes I've, even as a, as, even as a young preacher, I thought, you know, I really, need a, I really need one of those testimonies of those speakers that have gone out in the world and done really crazy things, and then God revived them and brought them back. You know, that's, those are the speakers people like to listen to, right? Um, but, I, you know, I really believe I have a lot to be thankful for. Because the, the grace of God that keeps a person in the truth is no less powerful than the grace of God that recovers one who has been lost to the truth. And so I'm thankful for my upbringing. I'm thankful that uh, I was very early inspired to spend time in God's Word. I was born in Loma Linda, California. And um, um, what is it? KSGN, the radio station? There in Loma Linda, as a kid, I was I listened to, to KSGN, and that was my that was every morning. Um, they used to have I don't know if they still do. They used to have Alexander Scorby read the Bible for 15 minutes, and they had a they had a uh, they had a, a magazine which told you what he was going to read, and and that would um, you could read the Bible through in a year in those 15 minutes. Anyway, when my family moved out to uh, Arkansas. Uh, we no longer could get KSGN, of course, but we still somehow were getting the magazine. And so as a, as a young person, I started reading my Bible, and I'd read those, those passages, 15 minutes. Probably took me longer than 15 minutes a day. But um, very early, I was uh, reading the Bible and reading it through, and even um, my, my grandma wanted me to be a preacher. And uh, so she would take me to the nursing home and uh, put me up on a chair and have me preach. And I was all of, what, six years old, you know, and I would preach about Daniel and, uh, you know, the lion's den or whatever it was. And, you know, when you're, when you're at a certain age and you're very young, you have very little self-consciousness. So you're not, you're not shy. You're not, you're not, um, you're not ashamed of, of, you know, making mistakes or whatever. And, um, I don't know, it didn't last too long before it wasn't. I wasn't really willing to go in public and preach like that anymore. But I remember those days. And um, later, later I, uh, I, I began sharing again. Actually, my first sermon that I preached in a church, I was 12 years old. And I was so nervous, even though I was in a, you know, basically all the people I knew and friends and everything, family, that I was so nervous, I started blacking out when I stood up to speak. And um, I managed to get through it, but I was always shy. I never wanted to be a preacher. And um, all through my uh, high school, and I'm, I'll, I'll try to s make this short, I, I, I expected I wanted to become a doctor. I, I, I wanted to study medicine. That was my goal. And so um, that's what I intended to do. Well, my senior year of, of college, I went to a, a training program, which was something, uh, senior year of high school, I went to a training program, which was something like AFCO or, um, you know, the three or four month training program to do Bible work. And um, I was a shy person, but I wanted to get out of that. I wanted to do more for God. I had a burden. I knew God was calling me to do ministry, and I, I wanted to do, uh, I wanted to be a, a missionary doctor, you know. And so I, um, I went to this training program, and during that program, my, my, uh, my life was immersed in the Word of God. Now, you understand, I had never left the church, right? I've never gone out and sown my wild oats. I'd never done, I'd never done crazy things and wild things. But as I'd gone through my, my, my teen years, maybe early teen years, teen years, I don't know exactly where it began, my fervor in my religious experience had waned, I have to say. Until, for me, I was, I was going through forms 
and, and it was sort of like an outward expression of the, the things that we do as Christians, right? I mean, we go to church on Sabbath, and, and I taught the Sabbath school lesson. I studied my Bible. I, did, I was not a, a bad person. In fact, I would even dare to say uh, I was a good person. And, uh, but there's a big difference between being a good person and being a converted person. There's a big difference. And so uh, here I am, I'm, I'm 17, maybe almost, maybe 18 years old, and I, I'm, I'm studying the Bible more than I had been, which is always an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work. Sometimes people say to me, you know, I read the Bible and I don't get anything out of it. Yes, you do. You may not realize it, but the more time you spend in the Word of God, the more opportunity the Holy Spirit has to access your mind. Keep spending time in the Word of God. Keep studying your Bibles. Keep reading your Bibles. I've seen lives transformed. Maybe it didn't happen the first day or the first week or the first month, but I've seen lives transformed simply by studying the Bible. And here I was, and I remember there were two sermons that I listened to back to back. Praise God, God uses the foolishness of preaching to save souls. Because I heard these two sermons, on, it was on a Wednesday night and on a Friday night. I don't remember which one was which, but there were two sermons. One was on the ten virgins, Matthew chapter 25. And uh, you know, the ten virgins is very applicable to us living as believers, right? Because the ten virgins were all Seventh-day Adventists, or they were all believers, right? They all have a regard for the truth. They all have a love for the truth. They all like to hang out with people who believe the truth. They all are very, very sincere, and I heard this message on the ten virgins, and the Holy Spirit was starting to convict my heart. And then I heard another sermon. This was the, the sermon on the, the parable of the two sons. Remember that story Jesus told? The parable of the two sons, uh, Matthew chapter 21, where the father said to his two sons, Sons, go out and work in my vineyard today. And the one son said, Okay, father, sure, I'll go work. But instead... Well, if you've read the Uncle Arthur's books, you know, he went fishing. But I don't know if that's really what the Bible teaches. Uh, instead, he, went, he didn't go work, right? They just, the illustrations, the pictures in the, in the Bible story have him out fishing. So that sort of sticks in my mind. So here he says, I'm going to go, Father, but he doesn't go. The second son says, I'm not going. Overt rebellion, right? Overt, open, outward rebellion. But afterward, he repented and he went. And so Jesus asked the, the religious leaders of his time, which, of you, which do you think really did the will of the Father? And of course, they were smart guys. They answered very quickly. They said, well, of course. The one who said, uh, I'm not going, but afterward repented and went. And no sooner had the words escaped their lips when they realized they just condemned themselves. Because Jesus turned to them and said something that really, really rankled their spirits. He said, that's right. And then he said, the, the publicans and harlots. In today's language, we would say the mafia bosses and the prostitutes are going to enter the kingdom of God before you. Why? Why would Jesus say that the mafia bosses and the prostitutes are going to get to heaven before people that sit in the pews in church every Sabbath morning and pay their tithes and do their 
good deeds. The only way, the only thing I can figure out is that that group who are in overt rebellion, they realize their lost condition. And having realized their lost condition, they are closer to the kingdom of God than someone who knows all the right doctrines, all the right truths, all the right things to do and say, but don't realize they're satisfied with their externals where their heart is not converted. And as an 18-year-old, I came to the realization. The Holy Spirit used these two twin messages to convict me that though I was a good boy, I was lost. I was lost. And the, the, the troubling thing is that I didn't know what to do. I knew my life wasn't a life of victory. I knew that, <clears throat> like the angel of Bochim, I knew that, that the Lord could say to me, you've not obeyed my voice. I had in the back of my mind, someday I would. Someday I was going to overcome those things. I was going to stop those things. I was going to, I was going to be the Christian that, of course, I wanted to be. And because I was professing, because I wanted, to, because I wanted that, that counted, right? But I knew I was not living that life. Oh, I could recite the Bible verses. I could give the Bible studies. I could even preach sermons. But in my heart, I had a love for sin. An attachment to sin. There were things in my heart that I had not been willing to fully surrender to Jesus Christ. And I knew it. And all of a sudden I realized I was in a lost condition. You know, I remembered something. I remembered something that I had heard. I don't even remember where I heard it. But I remembered that someone had once said that if you, if you want to be saved, if you want a revival in your life, then you need to pray and ask God to bring you that experience and bring you that, that understanding and bring you that conversion no matter what it takes. And so I'm thinking, and this happened to be, I don't know what night of the week it was. It was probably either, it was either a Wednesday night or a Friday night, because I just heard one of those messages. It must have been a Wednesday night, because it was in the middle of the week. So Wednesday night, I'm going to bed, and I'm, I'm, I'm laying in the dark on my mattress in the basement of this home where I was staying, and I, 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 I'm realizing I'm lost, if my life were to end tonight, I would, I, would, I would be lost. I'm finished. And not only that, I realize I know so much truth. And you know, when, you're, when you know so much truth, your, your, your responsibility is greater. And it's harder for God to reach you when you know so much truth. That's one of the reasons why the, the prostitutes and, and, and the mafia bosses get to heaven first. Because their hearts aren't hardened by resisting the convictions that we have as believers.
and rationalizing them away. And so I'm thinking, look, all these years, I've been resisting and resisting. My heart is so hard, maybe I can't even be saved. And so I, I prayed to God that night. I slipped out of my bed, and I knelt beside my bed, and I prayed, God, I want you to save me. I don't want to be in this condition. I realize I'm not where you want me to be. I want to be saved no matter what it takes. And as, a, as, a, as an 18-year-old who was, involved, who was very active, the, the worst thing that I could contemplate that could possibly happen to me, that God could possibly possibly allow in order to save me would be for me to be in some sort of a terrible accident and become a quadriplegic. I could see myself in a wheelchair, quadriplegic, none, unable to run and play games and do the things that I love doing any longer. And I, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, Lord, even if it means I become a quadriplegic, I want to be saved. I would rather be a quad I'd rather make any sacrifice here on this earth in order that I might have eternal life that I might be able to help others be saved and not help others be lost You know I wish I could tell you that God just gave me sweet peace or that somehow he just revealed himself to me and I knew that I had been accepted but that's not what God did. As I lay there on my bed that night, the feelings of anguish only intensified. My roommates didn't know what was going on. Nobody knew except me and God. But as I was praying, God, save me whatever it takes. I'm praying this prayer and I'm praying it earnestly and I really mean it. It was as if my prayers were not reaching the ceiling. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that your prayer, I mean, this is not, it's just not getting through. God is not hearing. God is not listening. And I'm thinking, it's too late. I've gone too far. I've known too much for too long. There's nothing God can do to convert my heart. And I, I can't, as I stand here before you tonight, I cannot begin to describe the feelings of hopelessness and despair that the thought of being eternally separated from God brings to the human heart. I've never, I had never experienced anything like it. I've never experienced anything like it since. But that night, I didn't sleep a, a wink. I was horrified. The next morning, the lady, the home I was living with, she saw me. She said, what happened to you? I was pale, white as a sheet. The, I, I cannot put into human words the anguish of my sense of being lost that filled my heart. I found, though, that when I was reading the Bible or Spirit of Prophecy, I found relief. 
And throughout the next day, as I was reading the Bible and I began quoting promises and claiming promises, and I still remember one from Steps to Christ I read, she says that, she says that every longing of the soul after righteousness is evidence of the Holy Spirit's working upon the heart. And I claimed that promise because I said, I'm longing after righteousness. I want to have the life you want me to have. As I claimed those promises, I read the Bible, as I read the Spirit of Prophecy, I began to have a little bit of an understanding of what had actually taken place over the last couple days. What I believe happened is when I said, God, I give you permission to save me, whatever it takes, I believe what God did is He withdrew His presence or my understanding, my, my sense of His presence to the point where the devil was able to oppress me with these thoughts of hopelessness and despair. And I believe God allowed that to happen. And as I began to understand that, let me tell you, there was something that I had in my heart that I had never had before. There was an absolute, unquestioned hatred for sin. Because I saw that sin, even my sanctified sins which I had been practicing as a church member, even my pride, even my whatever it is, my, my, my sins were hideous because they separated me from God. And anything that separates me from God, I did not want in my life at all. You didn't have to tell me you're going to be punished. No, I didn't want it in my life. I hated sin because I had seen a little bit of what sin costs. You see, I believe that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, when he said those words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was suffering the death that you and I will have to die if we die apart from Christ. He is suffering that separation from God. It is an anguish of soul that no words can describe. The, the, the eternal oblivion is not the real thing to be feared in the wages of sin being death. What's, being, what's to be feared is dying apart from God, knowing there's no hope, there's no future, and seeing your sins for what they really are, too late. That's the second death. Thankfully, brothers and sisters, Jesus already tasted that for every man. Perhaps in a little way, I sensed some of what Jesus tasted for me. It revolutionized my life. It changed my entire Christian experience. It gave me a sense of my need for a Savior. And it gave me a sense of the wonderful Savior that we can find in Jesus Christ. Two things we need to know for revival in our own hearts to take place, for us to experience a vibrant salvation experience with Jesus. One is to know the character of God. Two, is to know ourselves for what we really are, who we really are. And I would invite you, over the course of these next few days, as you're here at the Western Youth Conference, I would invite you to spend time talking to God about both of those things and asking God, giving God permission 
to reveal not only himself to you, but to reveal yourself to you. That we could have our own Bochim experience. That a revival and a reformation as we see ourselves for who we truly are might take place. It would be a lasting change in our experience. Is that your desire? Do you want to say, Lord, I'm willing to be shown myself. And you want to give him permission to do that no matter what it takes? Let's pray. Father in heaven, tonight in just a few minutes, we've contemplated what it means to know you and to know ourselves. Lord, I just want to pray once again that you will save me whatever it takes. And Lord, for each young person here, each older person, each of us, Lord, who has a soul that's been redeemed by your blood, but many of us who are tempted to become comfortable in our pews and self-satisfied. Oh, Lord, do whatever it takes. You see each heart. You hear each prayer tonight. We give you permission to do what it takes that we might be able to see ourselves for who we truly are. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit promised to do this work for us this weekend. And thank you for a Savior who is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God through him. Thank you that no matter how great our sins may be, our Savior is greater still. Thank you that no matter how stubborn our hearts have become, your love and your persistence is stronger still. Thank you, Jesus, for promising to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But help us to cooperate with you in our times of study, in our times of prayer, speak to our hearts that we might be revived, renewed, refreshed, and that we might be able to share with others what a wonderful Savior is Jesus our Lord. In His name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.